You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. For me, the first question is, what kinds of knowledge are valued and what kinds of knowledge are not valued? Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Walk onto any college campus in this country, pick up a current issue of Forbes magazine or the Harvard Business Review, and chances are pretty good you'll see something about curiosity. Banners greet incoming students with cheerful declarations and directives with some variation on Steve Jobs' famous line, stay curious. Curiosity is hot. And far be it from me to put a damper on that enthusiasm. I am, after all, among those making similar declarations and directives. In part, curiosity is the flavor of the day, right? The latest silver bullet promising a perfect shot at business success and world domination. With it in our arsenal, our students will thrive, our relationships flourish, our creativity blossom. You get the idea. Curiosity as cure-all. If we could only bottle it, everything would be great. Which is what makes today's guest so interesting. Because he takes issue with our commodification of curiosity and challenges us to see its unintended consequences infecting college campuses across the country in ways we might never have imagined. Arjun Shankar is a lecturer in anthropology and education studies and currently writing a book called How Development Feels. Today we're talking about his paper, The Campus is Sick, Capitalist Curiosity and Student Mental Health. Welcome, Arjun. Nice to be here, Lynn. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. So tell me, what's different about how an anthropologist approaches curiosity? So that's a great question, and for several reasons. I mean, when we talk about curiosity or curiosity studies, the literature has typically been really overdetermined by psychology and psycho- psychological studies mm-hmm. of curiosity. And what psychologists really want us to think about when it comes to curiosity is what's happening inside of us in our brain, mm-hmm. right? They're talking about the idea that there's a particular drive, motivation, something happens in us when we become interested in learning. And these things are all, all very useful for when we're trying to think about why people ask questions and why people don't ask questions. But for anthropologists, we really start with our sociocultural and our political and economic worlds. And so for me, when I'm thinking about curiosity, I'm not starting with what's happening in say, our brains as sort of universal construct, but how different populations are either allowed to be curious, have their curiosity satiated, facilitated, or inhibited based on the particular kinds of social worlds in which they live. And of course, for me, schools become one of those institutions that can either facilitate our curiosity, meaning they allow us to ask a lot of questions, particular types of questions, or prevent us from asking particular kind of questions. So that's the starting point for how me as an anthropologist thinks about the question of curiosity. Uh-huh. And and so then how do you define curiosity? <laughs> that's another... <laughs> that's very, always the question, right? <laughs> that's always the question. And, you know, I'll, I'll say first that I hesitate to 
to define terms. One of the things about anthropologists is we try to study how concepts are deployed in the world, meaning how do other people make sense of a concept like curiosity rather than predetermining it through our own definitions. And so generally as an anthropologist, I hesitate to sort of pin down a definition, but my working definition at this point is that curiosity is really about a knowledge emotion. And this comes out of Winifred Gallagher's work on you, where she talks about curiosity as a knowledge emotion. And what that means is that curiosity is how, about how one feels as they're acquiring new knowledge, mm-hmm. much more than it is a drive or cognitive in nature. So you actually write about it as a, as a knowledge emotion situated within nested regimes of value. Unpack that, if you would. <laughs> right. So if we're thinking about curiosity, as I said, as a phenomenon in our sociocultural world, for me, the first question is, what kinds of knowledge are valued and what kinds of knowledge are not valued? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the first thing we ought to define there is value. And I, I really think about value as sort of how we determine relative desirability. Now, some people think of value as just merely desire, right, what we want. But actually, value is much more about how we determine what we want within our social world. So do we make a choice to, for example, choose one major if we're a college student or another? And how do we make that determination based on what's deemed valuable or what's deemed desirable? And so when we're thinking about curiosity, we're thinking about how we feel about acquiring knowledge in relationship to societal values and norms. Not necessarily what we do want, but that we think we ought to want? Is that the difference? Precisely. For us as individuals, we're thinking about what we should do Mm. a lot of the time, especially Mm -hmm. when we're of college age and we're, you know, adolescence is a time of really trying to figure out who we are in relationship to what other people are telling us all the time as to what we should be doing. And so this should becomes a really interesting way of determining what kind of questions we then ask or don't ask. And so what does that do to curiosity? Well, it does a whole lot of things. But the first thing that it does is it really curtails the kind of knowledge that students are pursuing. Mm-hmm. When, when we sit in classrooms and we start to think about what are we interested in learning, what are we interested in discovering in the future, most students start with the question of, well, what should I be asking about? And so when we start with that question of what we should be asking about, we really are limiting to a very large extent what kinds of curiosities we can have. And, you know, we see this all the time. You know, I talked about in the article uh, a lot about capitalist curiosity. So students are really encouraged to ask questions that have to do with their economic mobility. Job, job status in the future, occupation, what kind of major should I take in order to get the right grades, to get the right job, to make the most money in the future. And that really constrains how they think about exploration, questioning, and it really prevents them for, from doing the kind of critical questioning that we as educators might actually want them to start doing and learning to do. So there's whole areas of inquiry that they're just dismissing, not pursuing, I mean, just not considering? Absolutely. I mean, the question in curiosity literature is about whether curiosity is always goal-oriented or not, right? Or do not you need at all. To be curious, right. right. Do you need to be curious about something always, right? right? So 
put setting that aside, what we can say though is that students are encouraged to be curious about very particular economic goals and economic、mm-hmm. statuses, and students are. Encouraged not to be curious about things that might challenge the status quo, that might lead them down a path which makes them see capitalist values as problematic, and anything that goes along with that is problematic as well. Right.、Mm-hmm. So you're really asked not to question social institutions because that might also diminish your economic potential. So areas of inquiry get shut down. Are there other consequences? I mean, are there consequences for the students, for the kids as well? Oh yes, and maybe the way、uh, to take a step back here is to talk about why I got interested in curiosity in the first place. Yeah,、right? please do.、And、really, it started in sort of three different realms. Right, the first realm was,、uh, you know, I got my PhD in anthropology and education at the University of Pennsylvania, and before I got my PhD, I was a ninth grade biology teacher in New York City. Oh, okay. And that was really formative for me to to see what education was doing to students while being a teacher in a classroom. And of course, when you're dealing with ninth grade students, a lot of our attention in in pedagogy is to teaching towards tests, right? And so that became the entire premise for how learning should happen in classrooms. We had to learn a lot of facts. We had to study for tests. And what I found is. Students in those classrooms were basically told to leave their curiosity at the door. Right? They weren't allowed to ask any questions about, you know, what was important to their lives. They weren't allowed to ask questions that might explore、uh, a really obviously curious subject as biology in any sort of sophisticated way that moved beyond the kind of standards that were prescribed by the state. And so this became a kind of problem for me because I was always negotiating the fact that. I wanted students to learn how to learn, right? To learn how to ask questions, but to do that necessarily meant a challenge to the objectives of any lesson or the objectives of a test.、Uh, yeah. And so this was the first sort of space that really got me to think about why curiosity and why curiosity was so inhibited in our K through twelve education context.、So、that was the first thing. The second thing was. As a you know a young professor in the college system, I, a lot of my students were coming to me, in a lot of cases, incredibly anxious, stressed, worried, crying about feeling like they were unsuccessful, feeling like they weren't meeting a particular kind of standard of success that they thought they should be aspiring to. And so when I started exploring this,、uh, I was at the University of Pennsylvania, and I also saw that the statistics on student students with depression, suicidal ideation, and just anxiety had skyrocketed over the last fifteen to twenty、mm-hmm, years.、Mm-hmm. I was wondering why was it that so many students were experiencing these kind of sort of mental unwellness states、uh, during their college careers, and what I came to through a lot of this work, talking to students. Seeing them in different classroom settings was that a, a large portion of this mental unwellness, and I don't want to put it all in this category, so I want to give that caveat beforehand,、uh, was because they felt like they couldn't pursue what it was they were interested in pursuing, or even maybe more, in a more sinister sense, they didn't even know what it was that they. Wanted to learn about because they had been told over and over again、mm. that they should only be learning about these particular things. And so, when it came time to think about their own futures, they were sort of torn from their own sense of self, right? Because they don't 
didn't have a sense of self in pursuing all of these ideas of what they should learn while they were in college. And that created a, a high level of emotional intensities and stressors. Wow, wow. I'm struck at the idea that being clear about what one is curious about is actually, if not equivalent, certainly a, a major component of one's sense of self. Because it is about sort of what interests you, what what excites you, where you see potential in the unknown, you know, where you want to go and break what for you would be new ground, right? If you're curious Absolutely. about it, it's because you don't know it. And to think of that as a sense of oneself and then to have the absence of that having really pretty astonishing consequences about this lack of a sense of self or direction or agency. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned, I think, through this particular project that I'm, that I'm in is that that's its own kind of learning. Mm. To be able to take mm-hmm. risks, to be able to be willing to explore the unknown, to take chances in sort of putting yourself in learning environments that you're not used to. And these are precisely the kinds of things that get pushed aside or um, made impossible when students are learning and socialized quite directly to follow risk-free possibilities, right, and pathways. And those risk-free possibilities are, of course, all about what will definitely result in success in the future. And so it's kind of this catch-22. It's a, it's a Faustian pact in a way, because once you de- decide that I only ought to follow these paths, you really foreclosed on the possibility of learning about yourself through sort of taking risks and putting yourself in learning environments that might create the possibility of something new emerging for you. Right. right? This right. idea of like, I didn't even know that I was interested in this. Well, how could you know until you had that opportunity to explore and be curious about it, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it has this sort of snowballing effect. So so I'm interested, too, in this um, this sort of paradox on the risk-security question and, and risk-taking. One question that comes to mind is whether you see gender differences in perceptions of risk or desires for security or however that gets expressed in its curiosity context on the campus. I actually think this is a, a fantastic question. And, you know, when I'm talking about economics and capitalism, we tend to forget that capitalism is both racialized and gendered heavily, mm-hmm. right? And in the and when we're talking about gender and capitalism, we're really talking about, for example, co- competition. And this idea that being a particular kind of competitive human being is by its nature a value, right? What is something that one should aspire to. And of course, we know that in a lot of these classrooms, masculinity and competition go together very well, right? Boys are taught from a very early age to aspire to be competitive, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Through sporting culture, through how boys learn to play, and that becomes a way of defining their value towards a future economic status. That came out a lot when I was talking to students where the only students who didn't feel this sort of lack of self-worth or this intense stress and anxiety were those who had sort of imbibed very deeply this idea of competition feeling good. Oh, interesting. And so when they felt that competition felt good, which were inevitably in almost every case by a particular kind of man, right? And I know I want to be clear that not all uh, boys in my study or men in my study 
felt this way, right? But it was inevitable that the few men who actually voiced pleasure in competition were also the ones who had less of this sort of anxiety about their future path as economic subjects as well. So my study started first at the University of Pennsylvania when I was a graduate student, and I didn't mention this earlier, but one of the big pivot moments when I thought I really had to do this research was when uh, Penn was affected by a suicide cluster, uh, where I think it was something like 14 students in five years took their own lives on the campus, right? And it was a massive, massive problem and deep despair all over the campus from from students, right, about what was happening. Of course, it's a a big Research One campus where uh, the pressures of being an elite university seem to play a large role in how students are being affected by, let's say, the capitalist university system, right? Versus a liberal arts campus where there is a tendency to believe that students are allowed to be more exploratory in what they can do when they're on campus, right? Mm -hmm. But what I found is actually, it actually tends to be the opposite. For example, on Hamilton's campus, there's a large discourse on choice. Right? and that students should come and be free to choose different majors, different courses when they come to campus. But what tends to happen in this choice discourse is two very sort of problematic things. The first thing is, of course, students are not coming to the campus as blank slate. Right? <laughs> they're already being pushed from you know, the time that they're in second and third grade at this point towards being tracked towards particular uh, conversations on achievement and success. And so by the time they come to campus, it's almost inevitable that they're going to fall right into the trap of choosing that which is safest, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. given what they've already been taught. And so really this sort of liberal arts model of choice only reinforces in a lot of ways the same sort of structures that students were already embedded in, right? And so, you know, a lot of my argument there is to say that actually there is some value to force students, and I I don't want to use force in sort of this impositional sense, but to really encourage students to put themselves in classrooms that they otherwise wouldn't be allowed to be in or think of themselves as part of. Depending on one's position, right, if you're a first-time college goer, uh, if you're a woman of color, if you're someone who comes from an elite class, everybody is grappling with this in very different ways, and it's causing different kinds of stressors for each of those individuals, but they're still all part of the same regime of value at this moment, um, which is why I feel it, why, which is why I'm so, you know, worried about what the future of the university and college life might be. So what do you recommend? That's a great question. I think that goes back to the uh, faculty conversation, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I've been doing a lot more research on this topic since I wrote this article, and inevitably, in each of these conversations um, with students, the first, the first sort of answer to the question of what changes their relationship to college and learning and their own sort of self-esteem is faculty. Mm-hmm. When faculty impose more sort of draconian ways of thinking about learning, that is to say, they stipulate dates and times for assignments to be due in even more strict ways. They don't necessarily see the students and their struggles as valuable or almost mock those struggles. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, students are going to feel worse, Right. right? But inevitably, when faculty are both sensitive to 
the kind of regimes of value that students are negotiating and do everything in their power to start to puncture that, that's one way that that starts to shift. And of course, one of the most problematic pieces of this is that students themselves don't feel like they have avenues to make change, right? And when they Mm. don't feel like they can make change, they don't feel like they have any agency to do something because it feels like these systems are so um, imposing, the should feel so imposing, then they're much more likely to feel the ill effects of that, right? But faculty can also encourage students to push back, to change. And the reason that faculties tend not to do that is that we're also surveilled by the college and university too, right? Sure. It's a very risky approach to criticize the place who, the, the, the institution that is the um, hand that giving, you. handing us our checks, right? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> when that becomes, that becomes in some ways the limit to some of this stuff because challenging these sort of norms might also risk our job. So that, and, and this is exactly why I'm saying that we're all sort of reckoning with this together. And I do think that faculty also need to be able to take control of their own learning and their own positions within college, on college's campuses, if we expect anything to change. That's the, for me, that's the first level of what has to change. And of course, from there, I think there's a much longer conversation to be had about how we channel the values on college campuses, right? How we channel what it is that what we want students to get out of their their four-year experiences in these places early on from the very moment they get here. And, And thinking about stigma and how students start to stigmatize themselves when they feel like they're not being successful on campuses and how we can change that culture entirely. That's a much bigger problem, Mm -hmm. but it starts with um, this sort of self-awareness that I'm talking about. When I first read it, I found myself at odds or at tension with it because a lot of the things that Arjun talks about are very reminiscent of my college experience. There's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, but at the same time, I feel that that like drives me to do more. And I've I've always, you know, stri- strived to be the best that I can be, and that pressure and anxiety and stress do- does that for me. And I've never thought about it being because of the culture of college. I just thought it was like a like kind of a a me thing. While I've been at work on this Curiosity Studies series, I've had the good fortune of having college students as interns working with me. Caroline Kish, then a sophomore at American University, had her own take. But rereading it and, you know, talking it out with my roommates and everything, we came to the agreement that college does put a lot of stress on people, but at the same time, you have a choice in determining how much it gets to you. So he, Arjun talks a lot about how our curiosity in universities is gendered. I think that men are more likely to put themselves out there and, you know, take the risks that I guess some females aren't willing to take. Um, And I don't think that should be the case at all. Of course not. But I think that that is not just, that's not a university thing. I think that's like a societal thing that needs to change. Oh, the always about being busy, you know, it's 
always, it's either you, you do so much in class and then you have to do so much outside of class. And that's a huge thing. I think that does take away from like the joy and like our ability to like, you know, just go out and have fun sometimes or like explore the city. But I think, again, it's you choose to do what you will with the time that you have. And I do focus a lot on school, but I also, I always like to take at least one day, one afternoon to just go somewhere new, go to a new museum, go to an old museum that I like and just do something for that I need for myself <laughs> but you know it's just me <laughs> Let's see. oh I, I thought it was really interesting that he mentioned the Harvard Business Review article that curiosities sells it's all about selling your curiosity making your curiosity profitable and I'm a philosophy major so I'm always have to be curious I always have to be asking the most absurd questions about life and everything and that normally will have nothing to do with my future financial aspirations and goals but it's something that I think will just it just makes me feel good about asking those questions and then it also makes me think more about just how I'm gonna continue with my life without having to you know, <laughs> philosophy makes you ask a lot of questions that you're not going to have to ask in the, in your future career. But I think it prepares me for my life outside of my career. This conversation is another in my series with the contributing authors of Curiosity Studies: The New Ecology of Knowledge. Arjun Shankar is one of the co-editors and has been a provocative thought partner as I worked on the series. He and his co-editor, Perry Zern, are turning the curiosity lens on curiosity itself, a kind of scholarly version of Choose to be Curious. They're looking to interrogate the scientific enterprise, relearn how we learn, reimagine how we relate, deconstruct the status quo, and ultimately come up with novel and effective ways to teach curiosity. Links on my website at choosetobecurious.com and lots of related material on the Facebook page. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can catch all my previous shows on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Special thanks to my guest, Arjun Shanker, to Sean Ballack for our theme and other music, and this week especially to Caroline Kish for both her efforts as our intern and the candor she brought to her reflections as a student in the throes of all that Arjun describes. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. I think the anxiety for a lot of faculty or for a lot of senior scholars is that they would prefer seeing the problem as at the level of the individual student, right? They would prefer saying, oh, these students, these children, they're just not, like, trying hard enough. Can't they just ask more questions? Like, 
when I was in school, I asked a lot of questions, right? So, so they locate the problem in individual students. Locating that in an individual student actually only exacerbates the problem. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.